0: Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.
1: Coleman Taylor Transmission, servicing central Mississippi for over 60 years. Their ASE certified technicians offer dependable transmission services, a warranty, and record services. Call Coleman Taylor today for all your transmission needs.
2: This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get
0: ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines
2: Everyone and welcome to midday super talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. On this hump day, the old pipe's pretty close, not quite a hundred percent. We'll see what it's like in three hours. Of course, Uh went home and rested a bit yesterday, trying to get them. Back to normal. Real close. I had a good old
3: vocal rest.
2: Yeah. Real close. Got to do that every now and then. Where you
3: walk around with a notepad or a dry erase (laughs) board and just mime it.
2: Yeah, that's pretty much it. On the program today at 1105, Senator Angela Hill joins us in the Element Wealth Studios to give us an update on all the stuff that's happening down there in the Senate, especially the, the state Senate. At the Capitol, and then at twelve oh five, Dr. Jennifer Bryan from the Mississippi Mississippi State Medical Association Board of Trustees Chair, Dr. Bryan will talk about the postpartum Medicaid extension, which, as we indicated yesterday, passed through the House Committee, having already passed the Senate, the full Senate. We'll see where that's headed now. So we look forward to those conversations today. We've also got some tickets to give away once again today, right? Doobie Brothers, it. yeah, got that. And this is uh, day two of the Supreme Court of these United States hearing the argument that would uh, that is that has been filed, I should say against Joe Biden's unilateral <laughs> unilateral decision to eliminate 400 billion of student debt just with the stroke of a pen as they say is that constitutional doesn't seem like it from
3: the questions being asked.
2: Yet, I would say at this point, there's a strong prospect of the Supreme Court ruling that, in fact, the President, independently, on their own accord, cannot just wipe out $400 billion of debt. That's the, what it looks like to me. Now... The folks who are coming out against the states who filed this suit and who were taking uh, uh, umbrage, shall we say, <laughs> to the initial reaction of the Supreme Court, signaling, I would say, at this point, that they do not believe the president is within his scope of authority and just putting a match essentially to this four hundred billion of debt. Well folks are going crazy out there. In particular, one Randy Weingarten rhino shared a video of her And i yesterday. completely forgotten about that. Yeah. The the tirade Oh, Ms- I gotta find that. That Miss Weingarten uh, went on there in front of the Supreme Court. Now you know who she is, Randy Weingarten. She is uh, the head of one of the teachers' unions, and honestly, I would argue, yeah, she's teachers' union president. I would argue that to a great extent, she is personally, virtually, single-handedly responsible for so many children missing out on a key part of their education during COVID. She's the one that insisted, we got to send them all home, and until you guys give us like a gojillion dollars, We're not even going to talk about going back to school. And now, of course, that is manifested in very poor educational outcomes. We got Randy? She goes crazy. Listen to this, folks.
3: I don't think there were any curse words from her, but uh, I'll keep my finger on the button.
4: (laughs) And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting. And we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were. Her-
3: ah, buffering. Well,
4: and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it.
2: Yeah, it stuck. Well, she goes off on a just a blistering, rather emotional tirade there right in front of the Supreme Court, right at the steps, at a podium, and she's bouncing up and down like that kangaroo's doing with the stock market. She's not a very tall person, but some of those bounces, it looks like she could touch the rim. She gets so high. Uh, we'll see if we can get that sound working later. But So the justification for just with the swipe of a pen for giving $400 billion of student debt, is that the government did, in fact, drop helicopter money, as we've said, out of these skies onto private businesses in the form of PPP loans and, and uh, other COVID aid. Yes, because it was the government that shut the businesses down. I've
3: got an even better argument than that. Who provided the PPP loans? It was passed by Congress. Right. Because Congress controls the purse strings.
2: Correct. Not the president unilaterally through an order. Great point. And that's what she's missing here. That's what they're all missing. The Supreme Court is not deliberating the merits, or the problems with forgiving student loans. It's deliberating considering whether or not the president of this country has the power through our Constitution to do so. Why are they missing this, like they always do? Because they're all willfully ignorant. And I think it's because... They know that their argument is not in, f- in favor of this student loan forgiveness, does not have sufficient support in the Congress to enact. That's the problem. It didn't when the Democrats controlled the House, because it's another situation where you got to peel off some Republicans in the Senate to get it to the President's desk. We might as well just get rid of the Congress, based on what Miss Weingarten and others argue for, which was allowing the President to make these kinds of decisions that are gigantic when you consider $400 billion. And this brings up, I think, an- another issue that is of concern to me is that it's the White House and the bureaucrats in the agencies that run the dang country. The Congress really doesn't do a lot. The people who are supposed to, where all this nuttiness comes from is the agency complex. Well, who do they report to? The President. Congress tries to inject some oversight into it, but as long as the parties... Uh, in control of the chambers, support that agenda, they really don't act. But that's what's missing here. It's the same with respect to the Dobbs case. That wasn't about abortion. It was about whether or not the Supreme Court can, through a ruling, can, through a ruling, make such a, a change. That's what it's about. Well, or, or should this be returned to the states in accordance with our Constitution, the Tenth Amendment, federalism? I know those little things get in the way of the Democrat agenda because they're far more enamored with and supportive of an authoritarian approach to government, style of government. Yet they say it's the right that is engaged in authoritarianism. I don't get it, Miss Weingarten. That's what you're calling for. One person out of three hundred and thirty million signing on a dotted line, eliminating four hundred billion dollars of debt owed to the taxpayers. We're coming right back in the Element Well studios. Don't forget Senator Angela Hill at eleven oh five.
0: gibbert he keeps his classified documents right where they belong inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s gerard gibbert super talk mississippi
5: two three four
2: and i ain't telling you where that journey record jacket is it's got my classified documents. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so it's six states who filed this case that uh, against the, the president uh, just with the stroke of a pen for giving 400 billion of student loans, six cases, uh, pardon me, six states. Involved in the case.
3: I want to say there was also at least one student loan borrower. Hmm. Okay. That had already repaid during the pandemic. I Maybe that was an amicus brief.
2: I'm not sure that made it to the Supreme okay, Court. Okay, didn't make it. Yeah. Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina are the six states. Right. Involved here. I would say after day one, unlikely. But Randy Weingarten
3: Yeah, I finally got the audio to here we go. Listen up the folks. here.
4: During the pandemic we understood that small businesses were hurting. And we helped them and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting and we helped mm. them and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students They challenge it, the corporations challenge it, the student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right, that is not fair, and that is what we are fighting as well when we say cancel student debt. This is about the people, and it is about the people's future, and it is about all of your future.
2: Is this what you could describe as going postal?
3: Yeah, that's definitely a meltdown. (laughs) Uh,
2: Is there a middle name, Karen? (laughs) Wow. There's so much wrong in that. It's such a false comparison. So the government shuts down the economy effectively in the country and then says, here's some money to compensate for our action." She's equating that so of, of no decision on their own, no action on their own. It was not anything they did that, as she put it, hurt small businesses, hurt big businesses. It was the government. Government said, You gotta stay home. Right? What about the curve? Flatten the curve. Two weeks to flatten the Two curve. Two weeks, right. That turned into three years. Week
3: 157.
2: Still under the public health emergency. I didn't do that math, so that's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so we shut the we shut the economy down, and then the government passes $3 trillion in 2020 and another $2 trillion in 2021. Described as COVID relief, we're still spending it here in Mississippi, under ARPA, the American Rescue Plan. That was 1.9 trillion in 2021, all under the guise of well, we shut everything down, so we got to give them some helicopter money. And the next thing you know, we got 600 billion. It is estimated of. Unemployment benefits fraud, along with PPP fraud, a long list of cases. And Miss Weingarten here, Karen Weingarten, she's equating that to forgiving student loans that were decisions made by the borrowers, bad decisions. These businesses didn't make those decisions. The government did. I'm not aware that the government, through force, caused anyone to go to school and take out a student loan. Did anybody force them to do that? The government, however, did force businesses to shutter. And in some states... Some communities, the penalty could be taking you off to jail if you violated those shutdown orders. It's a false comparison here, Miss Weingarten. False. You're trying to say that the government compensating a private company or even an individual for something... That they produced in the form of shutdowns is equivalent to forgiving people who borrowed money on what in retrospect was imprudent. It was bad decision-making. So we're compensating individuals for making bad decisions. Well, You know, i bought and sold some stocks that didn't work out very well. Can I get a bailout on that? I mean, you could just make a gazillion cases, right, to to rise to the level that she is trying to equate student loans to. Now, when people are hurting, well, there's a lot of things that cause people to hurt. The question is, is it the government's responsibility to bail out poor financial decisions? Who out there hasn't made in their lifetime a poor financial decision? I freely admit I have. Oh yeah, I signed
3: up real quick for that credit card they were giving out in the in the cafeteria freshman year of
2: college. Hey, that's free money. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. But I don't go whining to the government and saying you got to bail me out. No, I just spent the better part of a decade trying to rebuild credit. Unbelievable. And then, of course, since 2020, forbearance, right, has allowed people who have student loans to just quit paying on them. Still going on. Oh, yeah. Not expected to end, not scheduled to end until June of this year. That's Which is what, the fifth extension, sixth extension? I'm not sure about specifically that, but the public health emergency has been extended 11 times between Trump and, and Biden. It often happens without fanfare. Right. So you don't hear a lot about it. But it's th- it, regardless, three years, We're we're coming next month. This month, we're in March. Hell, I just forgot. We're in March 1. This is the month. You remember, 2020, we started early 2020 hearing about uh, COVID cases. I believe Washington State was the first in this country. Yeah. And then I think Hattiesburg was the first in the state. And we kind of dismissed it, next thing you know. It's spreading like wildfire, and we're yeah, shutting the, everything down. The turning
3: point was the NBA. That's what I remember. You had the NBA player who was joking about it and touching the microphones, and then all of a sudden there's a COVID positive, and they shut everything down. That's right. And the dominoes started falling.
2: And then, remember, baseball, the World Series, all that stuff was you know on the heels of that. But you're right. It was sports, I think, is where. And we were sitting here in the studio. It's like con- a continuous stream of new announcements of something else shutting down. So, yeah, so the government shuts everything down, and then they send money to compensate. That's not the same as a person making a very poor financial decision. And honestly, nobody's, she's not even arguing that the folks that have this debt can't pay for it. She's just saying, we got to bail them out, as are all proponents of it. And data clearly shows that in terms of the dollar amount that would be forgiven, most of that goes to higher wealth households. You've seen this data. Most oh, of, yeah. Most of that's concentrated in higher wealth households. I mean, the people with the most student loan debt
3: are the doctors and lawyers of the world. Yeah, they stayed in school longer. I mean, that's... That's just common sense, logical math right there. But that's a risk they took on in order to make six figures a year.
2: Sure. And so we're going to forgive their debt, if, you know, even though they can they can afford it. I understand they don't like paying it. I don't like paying either stuff like that. But it's not a situation where Miss Weingarten is saying they can't afford it The folks over at Time uh, who write for the magazine, most of whom are left-wing loons, they got a take on it as well. In the title of the article, I review it in the next segment, just released yesterday, How We All Benefit from Student Debt Relief, All. (laughs) We'll cover that after the break here on Middays. We are in the Element Well Studios.
0: The stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
5: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Ah, yes, Mick Jagger in the Stones there. Sympathy for the Devil, the name of that tune bumping us into this segment on Middays. In the Element Well Studios, don't forget Senator Angela Hill up on the program at 11.05, Dr. Jennifer Bryan at 12.05, and we got Doobie Brothers tickets to give away later on in the show. We've been talking about this student loan case that has made its way up to the highest court in the land, six states, signing on as plaintiffs. And their argument is the president doesn't have the authority to single-handedly, unilaterally, wipe out $400 billion of debt. Honestly, he doesn't have it to do a dollar of debt. The amount is irrelevant. And once again, the left's focus is on the merits of, or the detractions of the specific policy at question here, the action at question, not the legality of it. But yet, they claim to be champions of democracy, and blast the right as being authoritarian, but, Rhino, the founder set this thing up this way, intentionally. The courts do not make law. They interpret it. That's the whole purpose of the whole system. They got that. What Miss Weingarten and other Karen proponents of student loan debt forgiveness want is the Supreme Court to be lawmakers in robes. No. And so now they're mad because, okay, Donald Trump, how how fortunate were we that, honestly, he was around? Maybe the greatest thing he ever did in appointing, now, some would say conservative Supreme Court justices, they shouldn't be either. They should be impartial. That's the whole idea of our justice system, our court system our judiciary. It is effective. It is productive. It is fulfilling its charge when it is impartial. It shouldn't be. Well, they're liberal justices. They're conservative justices. That shouldn't be the situation at all. So, what they're basically saying, some of the commentary yesterday, you may have seen it from Neil Gorsuch, for example. I don't have his exact quotes, but just in in recalling his statements, he basically said, yeah, I, I don't think under our laws the president can do this. He didn't say squat about, hey, would it be good to forgive student loans or bad, because that's not his job. So he's being described as a conservative activist authoritarian for simply doing his job.
3: They and don't. if you go back, what, just a little under two years ago, then Speaker Nancy Pelosi even agreed.
4: People think that the President of the United States, is this more on the subject than you ever want to know? Well, you'll let me know. People think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress.
2: It's it's so... It's a two-tiered deal. Yeah, we we like them to be activists when they're acting on our behalf of our agenda, but we don't like it when it goes counter to our agenda. That's the way they operate. What's the old colloquialism? Ain't as much fun when the rabbit's got the gun. (laughs) Well, that's what's happening here. Okay, so... I was telling you before we went to break about the left-wing wackos at time, mayors of four cities, Kansas City, Little Rock, Birmingham, and Montgomery, with significant black and brown population, say, we hope the justices kick this ill-conceived case out of court. So once again, we have reduced a critical legal question down to race. How is that not discrimination? When you're asking the court, you're imploring the court to consider race in a legal decision. Was there racism engaged in loaning money? To students to go to school, they got the loan. So you know what would happen if they were denied for the loan? They, of course, they clamor racism. They get it now. They won't. They won't forgive it, and it's racism. You cannot win. You cannot appease these ideologues. You can't.
3: It's because they're reductive to the point of stupidity.
2: It's, it pretty much is. I agree. The uh, Biden administration's debt cancellation plan is not only especially meaningful for our constituents, say these mayors, it will also lift up our cities and states economically. Unbelievable. And again, they're not arguing the merits of forgiveness writ large they're arguing that we got to do this because of the black and brown, marginalized communities. Everything has to have that injected into it. Everything. We, um, so they said, did these mayors, they were joined by 40 local governments in 24 states across the country. They partnered with some group known as the Public Rights Project, and they filed a brief. They say they represent more than 30 million people in this country, including almost 20 million people of color. Why is that important? Why do we need to know that? Why has the race and the gender and the sexual orientation got to be attached to every single issue.
3: Because victimhood is the more valuable social currency for politics.
2: Oh, man. Well, we could pivot here to Lori Lightfoot, our old friend Lori, the mayor of Chicago, soon to be former mayor of Chicago. She was routed in the primary in the Windy City. And, of course... She wastes no time blaming racism and gender on her loss. Who didn't see that coming? Of course, it can't be me. It has to be those bigoted voters. has nothing to do with a rampant crime in my city. While I was out yucking it up, right, partying, we had the video of her. And when I ordered... Everyone in the city to put them stupid masks on, which have now been proven to be 100% ineffective. While that was going on, Miss Lightfoot failed to wear hers when she got her hair quaffed. And you remember her lame excuse? Well, I'm a public figure. I got to make sure my hair's done for the air. Well, I think the citizens of Chicago just told you to get the hell out. A pathetic excuse, honestly. I don't care what her race is. I don't care about her sexual orientation, her gender. Matters not. It doesn't. I care about the fact that crime is out of control in her city. That the schools are failing, desperately failing. That businesses are struggling because they've got to, they had to take into their own hands the task of protecting their property and their inventory and their people. While she looked the other way and screamed, Oh, they're just racist. I like what I'm hearing from her opponents. Two have advanced to the runoff. I see one. I think a school board member, Rhino, and the other a um, oh, it's Cook County commissioner. I think it's a count like the equivalent to our supervisor, supervisors in Mississippi, a county level government. And they both came forward and said and ran on a platform of we're going to clean up the crime. In America's second largest city. Maybe it's not the second largest anymore. It may may fall behind um, L.A. or even Houston. But a big dang city, and it's a shame to watch it dilapidate and deteriorate. so the Still third largest. Had. Third, okay. It's ridiculous, and it's because of the failure of Lori Lightfoot's government. She's out of here. Good riddance. We're coming right back. With more on Middays, please stay with us.
0: Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
2: Welcome back to Middays Super Talk, Mississippi. And if you go down there, also, remember when they took out the student loan, they signed a contract, says Dan in Hattiesburg. That's absolutely right, Dan, you're right. I, it's just a false comparison to um, corporate bailouts, if you could call it that, or just money from the federal government that flowed to businesses and individuals. Again, in the case of uh, the COVID relief, that wasn't requested. That wasn't any action on the part of individuals or companies. That was government acting unilaterally. We're going to close you down. Here's some money to make up for it. That's how that worked. Also, Rhino, we, we've got, uh, I think, an outage at one of our stations, right, in North Mississippi, Oxford. Yes, and uh, WTNM. Okay, T N M. All right, and I think that's being worked on. Yeah, the T-N-M engineers are working point. on it right now. There's a, a problem with the satellite. Yeah, satellite communications going on there. William in Greenville says you haven't played Elizabeth Warren yelling at the top of her voice today. We'll see what we can find. You know, she's a big proponent of forgiveness of student loans. So is, of course our favorite senator from the great state of Vermont, who's that, Rhino? Bernie? Bernie Sanders. What does he ask for? I'm Bernie Sanders. Give me all your money. (laughs) Listen to this tweet by Bernie a few hours ago. In America, you should not have to face financial ruin because you want a damn education. Today we say to the Supreme Court, Listen to the needs of the people. Do the right thing. Support Biden's proposal to cancel student debt. So, in other words, Senator Sanders, you don't care about the rule of law. I thought you're the one that has been grousing for some time that Republicans are a threat to democracy. No, sir. Imploring the Supreme Court... To make a ruling based on the needs of the people, that is counter to the rule of democracy, to our system of government, to the function of the highest court in the land. They are supposed to be impartial, and they are supposed to rule and opine based on the law. It is the government in the form of the Congress and the President requires all three of those bodies to make law based on the, quote, needs of the people. You're wrong, Bernie. Completely. Utterly wrong. Robert Wright says on his twitter if we can cancel trillions in taxes for a handful of billionaire billionaires we can cancel student loan debt for over 40 million Americans always got to make the false equivalence based on based on income balance sheet economic status always well
3: Well, it's because they can't blame it on inaction by Congress because they had the Congress, and they've oversimplified the people's understanding of Congress to the point where they don't even have room for nuance to say, well, we could have tried,
2: but we didn't have Republicans to help. So true. Uh, First, Mr. Wright, it's not trillions. That is so wrong. It's completely wrong. I don't know what he means by cancels, cancel taxes. What does that mean? Because this again suggests that Mr. Reich, like so many leftists, believe that all income originates and emanates from government. All wealth is produced by government, not individuals, not risk-taking, not most importantly, above all else, value creation? No. It comes from government. And when you're allowed to keep some of it, well, that's just because of the generosity of the government. That's what he said. That's what that implies. There's no canceling of taxes? That's a dumb thing to say. You don't cancel taxes.
3: Well, consider the source.
2: That's just a He's false full comparison. Of dumb things to say. Oh, it, it drives me crazy. When I see that in his take on that and his bloviating about taxes and the most successful in society. You don't cancel taxes. That's just dumb. But these are the same people that always like to clamor the Trump tax cuts cost 2 trillion over 10 years. Yet here he says trillions for a handful of billionaires, no. The so-called Trump tax cut, $2 trillion cut, which is $1.5 over 10 years, that includes virtually everybody that pays taxes, not just billionaires. You're a liar, sir. Coming right back with Senator Angela Hill.
0: And now...
2: Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well Studios today, and uh, joining us now on the program is Senator Angela Hill. She represents District Forty, which includes uh, what counties does that Marion
6: include? and Pearl River? Okay,
2: gotcha. She serves as the chair of County Affairs Committee and vice chair of Accountability. Efficiency, and Transparency. Thanks for coming in, Senator. Always good to see you.
6: Glad to be here.
2: All right. So let's start with this postpartum Medicaid extension bill. This came as a bit of a surprise when the governor announced that he would support this measure over the weekend. And then, um, of course, this bill passed the Senate already before he made that announcement, got transmitted to the House and it is passed out of committee in the House, and that's where it stands right now. Um, I wouldn't exactly say that the Speaker of the House robustly supports this legislation, but he, he did it, um, indicate that he would allow it to be referred to a uh, a committee and really hasn't been committal as to whether or not he would put it on the floor for a full vote at this point. Don't know. On the calendar. So that's where it stands right now. Your thoughts about that one?
6: Well, I didn't vote for the bill when it came before the Senate because I don't think Medicaid expansion is the answer. Um, First of all, we don't have enough doctors in this state to treat all the people that we have. Mm -hmm. It takes months for people to get an appointment to even get in to see a doctor. Right. Um, And, you know, when I was on Gallo, I talked about the fact that in years past, the health department used to take care of pregnant women and then when obamacare came around the health department's mission was changed and they shifted all this to primary care and basically i think that was just so that more private providers could get more of a piece of the pie Hmm. through through medicaid but yet we don't have enough private providers to take care of pregnant women and babies in in a timely manner there's there's areas of the state that that Hardly have any doctors, and you know that. And a lot of that's where the mortality rates are high. Right. And so what I would like to see done is I would like to see these health departments get back on par to serve the the um, folks, low-income people, like they used to. Um, there's, you know, there's federal money for that, too. Um, and our health departments, we already have a building in every county. Some of these buildings are substandard, Yes. And these counties need to get on the ball and get these, these buildings up, up to par. Look, I would rather even see a grant program to help get these health department buildings in shape rather than Medicaid expansion. Um, I'd rather see some capital improvements to, to help the counties because, look, the counties don't get any sales tax. Uh, the cities have been getting sales tax, you know, forever, 18.5%. The counties have to rely on property tax, ad valorem. So if you're, if you're a property owner, that's where all the revenue comes from in the county to run the entire counties. And that includes supporting health department, the colleges or, or whatever else, fire departments, whatever else the county supports. So, I, I I don't have a problem giving the counties some of the money for capital projects that I feel like they rightly deserve anyway because they're getting robbed of sales tax. Some of the counties are the fastest growing areas rather than the cities. you got flight out of the cities. My county has grown at a hugely faster rate than, than my cities have grown. So that's what I would like to see. Look, the health department was doing telemedicine over the old rotary dial phones and hooking up women to these contraction belts that had premature labor and they were transmitting this stuff over the phone lines years and years ago telemedicine before people knew what telemedicine was in mississippi the health department was using it to treat pregnant women in high-risk pregnancies uh preterm labor um, my sister-in-law retired from the health department they had good doctors. They had nurses. Uh, the doctors would rotate and go to, to different health departments, you know, at different times. So that was a system that actually worked. And I don't see how expansion of this Medicaid and primary care is going to help because if you look at the mortality rates for the last year that I got statistics through the peer committee, 12 of the 15 Maternal mortality rates 60 days postpartum were already on Medicaid.
2: Right, because the coverage, uh, the the. Um, traditional coverage, the conventional coverage, mm-hmm. is sixty days. Of course, the last three years it's been continuous. They were
6: on it the whole year, so so they were still on. Well, Medicaid.
2: no, for three years. If yeah. They, well, I mean, they, for the
6: since the pandemic.
2: Since they, that's right. Yeah, sin, since during the, the pa- pandemic. During the pandemic, yeah. once they're enrolled, they're on it exactly. until the the public health exactly. emergency so, ends, which so is coming these, up in a month.
6: So these maternal fatalities had full Medicaid coverage. Twelve out of fifteen.
2: Right, but what about what about illnesses? Uh, other than just, um, they still have fatalities. Medicaid. They
6: still have Medicaid.
2: Well, they do now. Yeah. But yeah. if the sixty day, if
6: we start with well, the sixty days, they wouldn't there's have. There's been a accurate. lot of a lot of talk about postpartum <laughs> depression and mental health care. We through the Department of Mental Health, we have community based mental health services. Um, low-income people can go through this I've actually had friends who found themselves in a bad way that actually had to go through these community-based mental health centers so I know that they are accessible okay and and everybody has access to them that that's low income or doesn't have insurance they actually have prescription programs they have a pharmacy assistance center where you can get your pharmacy prescriptions at a at a Rock bottom price because I've picked up those medicines for, for hmm. people who, uh, who didn't have coverage and got those through the community based mental health centers and the group homes and the grants and things that are out there for pharmacy assistance. So there is help out there. The problem is there's no really integrated system for coordinating to the mothers where all that Mm -hmm. care is so that they can get connected to all the assistance that's already out there. And I think that's a huge problem is just lack of knowing where to go to get it. And so I think that people, when they go in the hospital or when they go see a doctor, they need to be provided with that wrapar- those wraparound services that they can get. And I think that's been a huge problem is that they just don't know where to look to get it.
2: Well, would it, based on that then, Senator, would it make sense for Mississippi just to amend its Medicaid program uh, to no longer cover pregnant women? That's one of the coverage groups. and and just transfer that care to the Department of Health and let the state fund all of it.
6: Well, they're still going to have to have hospital coverage for delivery, but I think pretty much everything other than than hospital or or emergency coverage could be done, uh, most of it could be done through the health departments because the health departments would be basically acting like a clinic. Okay. Like they did before.
2: Given the shortage of, of medical personnel, though, where would the health department get these these people, these professionals?
6: Well, the, the, the private sector has the same problem right now. Right. But I think, you know...
2: So the health department would be in competition with the, the private sector. Would the state be willing to pay them well, wages? Well,
6: we've, we've already got this program in place to, for nurse grants, and I think with uh, the rural physician program that we have, a lot of that could be tailored to try to help these health departments. There's a lot of innovative ways that you could work. You could put these rural physicians that are doing OBGYN, you could put some of these in the health departments and you could pay them a decent salary. There's ways to work this thing if you think, if you think out of the box and innovatively, um, that, that the state already really has the the bones in place of a structure to do this we've just got to think about what we already do and how we can modify that to fill the positions in our health departments if we wanted to go in that direction
2: okay has anybody prepared any sort of financial pro formas that would show what that would cost? Because this sounds to me like this would be a significant increase in cost of operating the health department to add these services.
6: It, it would, but like I said, it's going to be a significant cost for Medicaid expansion, too. Right, but and the federal
2: government pays a good bit of that. In this case, it wouldn't pay the, any of The federal
6: of it. government also gives grants to the health department for lots and lots of things. Okay. Sometimes it's matching, sometimes it's not. So Mississippi was a whole lot poorer Back when we did this, than we are right now. Um, I can remember D-
2: did what exactly
6: when, when the health department had these services okay, I got Mississippi you. was was not in nearly as good a financial shape a lot of those years as they are right now back when when they provided those services at the health department. so it can be done. It's just priorities as to what somebody as to what leadership and whomever wants to do. Okay. Um, I, I think that if you look at the statistics and the numbers, um, I, I don't see that Medicaid expansion is going to do what what they claim it's going to do.
2: Well, of course, this isn't expansion per se. This is extension of an existing program. It's still,
6: it's still expansion.
2: Well, it's expansion of the time frame, but it's not expansion of a new coverage group. Same coverage group. Same coverage group. Yeah.
6: Same coverage group. Um, but it's you know it's still moving moving money um, around. It's still. You know, it's still doing things in a manner that, you know, a long time ago, we could we used to could count on the private sector to to help us rein in a lot of this expansion of government. Right. But 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 you know, through the years, the private sector has l- really liked they really like their their. Profit margins going up from all the the programs that we have for redistribution of of wealth to whatever, whether it be phone companies, electric subsidies, um, you, you know, you name it, uh, you know, SNAP programs, whatever it is, the private sector has profited greatly off of it.
2: We got a break right here. You can hang around with us. We got Senator around. Angela Hill in the Element Well Studios. He's coming right back. Uh, yeah, complicated thing.
0: The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is middays on this hump day. We've got Senator Angela Hill on the program with us now. So uh, besides this bill, and and really wanted to focus on that first, Senator, because that's uh, fairly recent. That's gotten a lot of attention with the governor and uh, the speaker, of course, um, uh, pivoting a bit. On that. I think it's a, a fair way and an accurate way to uh, describe it. Some other high profile bills that have been taken up, uh, one in particular is the what, what we have called the CCID bill, a bill that Representative Trey Lamar filed in the House, passed the House. It would expand the Capitol Complex Improvement District in the City of Jackson, uh, allow the Capitol Police to have jurisdiction. Uh, over that area and then also establish a new judicial system where uh, judges would be appointed. That has been transmitted to the Senate. It looks like it got uh, a big-time hacksaw in the committee over there.
6: I, that must have went to Judd A. I'm not on Judd A. So. I'm on Jud B. But I read about some of the changes, and the, the, one of the changes was that the Capitol Police would have jurisdiction across the entire city limits, and that's something I 100% agree with.
2: Well, in working with the other law enforcement agencies yes. through a memorandum yes. of understanding.
6: Yes. yes, because, you know, if if something happens in the capital complex and, and they need to pursue somebody outside the capital complex or they need to investigate something that happens has to do with the Capitol Complex that that winds up having, you know, something outside that they need to investigate. Um, they need that authority. Yeah. They need to be able to do that a hundred percent because, you know, what'll happen is crime just gonna keep moving a little farther and a little farther and a little farther out of the Capitol complex if they think we don't have jurisdiction to move in there. And so what do we want to do is clean it all up.
2: Right. Yeah, the only concern I had with it, Senator, and get your take on this, is that it's my understanding that when it, something, an incident occurs and something's reported and law enforcement has to be dispatched, that uh, it could be any of those uh, law enforcement uh, entities that could receive the dispatch and respond to the call. It could be the, the uh, Capitol Police, Jackson Police, or I believe the Sheriff's Department, if I'm not mistaken, of Hines County.
6: And as long as they have a communication system to where they can talk to one another, I think that's better rather than not having that uh, that potential because you know how long it takes to respond to some of these things. Right, So I think, you know, we most everybody has Ms. Wynn radios. Most people can communicate, and I think that's really all they need is a line of communication when responding to, to some type of 911 call because our ultimate goal is to get somebody there in the shortest period of time.
2: Right. Agree. All right. What do you think we ought to do about PERS? I know that's been uh, something that Senator Josh Harkins on uh, Senate Finance has been interested in a lot. Mm-hmm. He's co- he covers that. PERS is, uh, like virtually every defined benefit program in this country, is facing uh, some financial headwinds. What should we do there?
6: Well the people that are vested i've told people that if you're retired or you're vested in the program my goal is to not change your retirement plan but for new people coming in into the system we have got to figure out some kind of way to try to balance this out because you know it's the new feeds the old so you got to have new people coming in to keep keep paying and you eventually get upside down with more retirees than you have employees because state government has shrunk some since i've been here so that's your dilemma is is that you can get more or less upside down on payments and you're you're relying on your invested portion and when the stock market tanked after biden came in you know the the invested portion of it um dropped back down um so it's going to have to we're going to have to look at some kind of changes with new hires is, is what i think is a start um Because what happens is the cost of living adjustment that was put in in the 90s, you know, that compounds upon itself. And there was no mechanism put in there to actually fund that when that was put into place. Right. So they keep coming back to the legislature to bail Purs out. And eventually there's not gonna be any money to bail Purs out if we don't make some type of long term systemic changes.
2: Yeah. And, and And I'm
6: not a mathematician, I but I can look at it and see that it can't we can't keep the same defined benefit plan for new hires coming in and ever hope that this thing won't go bankrupt because it eventually will.
2: Yeah, especially if, with folks uh, living longer. Yeah. And then, of course, that that not only exacerbates the, the base uh, purse payment, but the compounding of uh, the 13th check.
6: Exactly. And, you know, I have a lot of relatives who, well, my sister just retired with 30 years of teaching. And I think our responsibility is to, to make sure that that retirement plan is solvent. Sure. And anytime you talk about PERS, anybody that's on PERS, they they get the stories all crossed up. And, and I mean, it's like the claws come out and, oh, don't you touch my <laughs> retirement. But, you know, a responsible thing to do is to make sure that that retirement plan is solvent. Right. And, and so that's that's where we need to look to, to make sure. But I think the commitment that we made to those retirees, we need to keep it.
2: Yeah. So the, as you're well aware, but for the benefit of our audience, the PERS board can increase the employer contribution rate, but it requires the legislature mm-hmm. to to increase the employee right. contribution rate.
6: Right, and we are they are already the, the the employer contribution rate hurts everybody when it's increased. It hurts it's cities. Taxes. It hurts cities. It hurts counties. It, it, it it's going to eventually wind up as tax increases. What it's going to wind up locally if that keeps happening. So we need to find a way um, to offset that. To, to, to keep that from continuing to go up.
2: Yeah. Okay, so another bill I want to ask you about, another health related bill, that, that seems to be an area that's uh, received a whole lot of focus during this particular session, is the, uh, the grant program that uh, would appropriate $80 million in the form of a grant to hospitals to help sort of defray some of their uh, financial shortfalls. What do you think about that bill?
6: Well, I voted for it because most of those rural hospitals, a lot of them, are, are county hospitals. And like we discussed before, counties have been robbed of a lot of money for a lot of years by not getting any of their sales tax back that they collect. And we know that there are lots and lots of businesses that are out in the counties that are putting a lot of sales tax, you know, into this, to the, to the general fund. So i've' adopted the idea that if I can't get a sales tax diversion back to the counties like they should have i'm gonna i'm gonna try to help them every way I can financially um and if that's something that they want to try to support their rural hospitals um then I'm gonna vote for it
2: okay so is was there a change somewhere along the line? Did Was there a time when counties did participate, did receive a diversion of sales taxes? That's never been the case in Mississippi, never, has
6: it? Never, that I, never that I could find.
2: Okay, so your point is we've got more sales activity occurring outside of city limits in the counties, but all that revenue... Uh, from sales taxes is not going to any of the counties. It's
6: going to the DOR and right. to the State General Fund. Right, 18% and none of, percent and none diverted. And none of it's coming back to the counties. The cities get 18.5% back, but the counties get nothing.
2: So if a business is located and generating sales tax uh, in the county, in an area that is not incorporated not as incorporated. a municipality, 100% goes to the DOR, to the general fund.
6: 100%. Right. None and of that
2: gets diverted back. None of
6: it gets diverted back to the county. The only way the counties have to raise revenue is property taxes.
2: Right. Ad valorem taxes.
6: And and that's a terrible tax.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Everybody gripes about <laughs> yeah. that one. I don't yeah. like that one either. I don't
6: either. <laughs> I don't either. And a consumer tax is a, is a more fair tax. Yeah, And that's why the counties deserve... Their portion of that sales tax back. Okay. So is this something you've proposed for probably ten years now? And, and what happens? Never gets considered. The municipalities was, argue
2: the, against that. I'm sure. Well, right? no, I, well, it I, I don't, don't affect I, them.
6: I don't, the, no, the municipalities, as far as I know, have never yeah. got involved. Okay. In it, it don't affect it's them. It's just it's just something. Now they do get some of the internet tax back. Okay. But but um, well, the cities get some yeah. of the internet tax yeah. back, but the the there was a bill that was seemed to be maybe getting a little traction in the House. I think it was maybe, I can't remember if it's Tracy Arnold's bill. I know, but Jerry uh, Rep- Representative Turner was working on it, and, and I had the numbers from DOR as to how much it would cost for the eighteen and a half percent diversion and a smaller diversion, and I shared those numbers with my friends on the House side. But I think that bill has probably died by now. Or okay. um, I don't know what the status of it is, but um, we just have to keep talking about it because it's just not fair. Um, and, and, you know, I started filing this bill before I was ever the county affairs chair because I'm a property owner. And I hear it from my businesses. I hear it from my property owners that, you know, that. The whole burden of running the county shouldn't be on the property owners. That we should. That we. That it's only fair to have some of this sales tax sent back to the county. So that hospital grant program, yes, going back to the counties.
2: That's the way it's structured. Most, you're, you're absolutely right. And most right of them are that. in the counties. Yeah. Uh, before you go, the uh, the ballot initiative, the citizen ballot initiative. How did how did you vote on that one in the Senate?
6: I voted yes on the on okay. the bill.
2: Okay. Even with a higher threshold,
6: even with a higher threshold, I voted yes on the bill. Okay, but I think there's some things that absolutely need to be changed with the ballot initiative. It's if it's brought back because I think it's um, not very wise to put less than 20 words on a ballot and be able to add unlimited amounts of information into your constitution.
2: Gotcha. Thanks for coming in, Senator Thank Angela you. Hill. Appreciate Thank it. you coming right back in the Element Well Studios. <laughs> Vintage Led Zeppelin there, is it not? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Iconic tune by an iconic rock band. So we were just looking at a report here locally that there is a large FBI presence seen at a business in Ridgeland here off of Highland Colony Parkway, which runs through the city of Ridgeland and Madison County. All the way up through the city of Madison and down south into the city of Jackson. And I'm looking at a photo. I can't tell where that is exactly, though. Interesting. That's all we know is that um, there are FBI agents scouring this office building and they put up crime scene tape around the premises. Wow. That's a little weird. Very interesting. We're watching it. On the C Spire text line, Dave says, remind her, talking about Senator Hill, that counties get state aid road money that no other entity gets. Well, Dave, are you saying aid plus road money, or are you saying aid in the form of road money? It is true, but bear in mind that counties have a whole lot more roads to take care of than cities do, like orders of magnitude, multiples. So I'm not sure that's a a real valid comparison there, Dave, honestly. When you think about the amount of roads that counties are responsible for maintaining versus cities. But it is true. What the senator said is they rely totally on ad valorem taxes, property taxes, to provide the various services with the exception of state roads in the county. Cities, on the other hand, do receive sales taxes, but those retailers in the county outside of the city limits in a county that produce uh, sales taxes, 100 percent of that goes to the state. There is no diversion back to the county. The senator is 100 percent accurate with that analysis. Uh, let's see. There's something here Oh, yeah. The uh, counties are the only form of government that have no accountability for spending other than the electorate." That's from Kyle and Jackson. Goes on to say, if they receive state money, then there needs to be accountability. There absolutely is, Kyle. They are subject to full-scope audit by the Department of Audit, and it's the Dep- Department of Audit's responsibility. To ensure that monies they receive, they being the counties, the entities that the Department of Audit audits, that's exactly what they're what they're doing. Besides preparing the financial statements, they're reviewing, as is the case with any typical full scope audit, they're testing balances on the balance sheet in in the um, the operational statements, and also ensuring that. Any state money, public monies received, were spent in accordance with law that provided those funds, uh, especially from the state. So that's exactly what the audit does, Kyle. So I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm following you that on that. Jeremy in Caledonia writes, right now there is a lot of talk on Medicare. I think you mean Medicaid, Jeremy. Uh, but that's okay uh, they're often confused expansion and hospitals closing but every other commercial on Super Talk right now is a medical center sponsoring a millionaire country singer I am assuming the medical center is private but some private institutions take federal or state money just seems to be a bad choice of spending even if it's a private medical center. It's a bad representation of a medical center due to the current medical state right now. Well, I would encourage you to bear in mind, Jeremy, that the big problem facing these hospitals is uncompensated care and an outsized amount of their care being reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid because both of those payers pay below cost. The only hospitals that really are able to produce any sort of positive cash flow are those where a significant amount of their payer mix is private insurers, which pay considerably more than do public sources, those being Medicare and Medicaid. So if by advertising and promoting... They are, in fact, driving more private-insured to their doors for services, that being the idea. Well, then, that actually improves their revenue picture, and thus their cash flow. So I hear what you're saying, but I just wanted to inject that analysis into your thought process there as well. You know, if they just refrain from all advertising and promotion, how would that affect their bottom line versus what little they do? I mean, that's a legitimate question, and that don't know there is such an analysis, but any entity, even healthcare institutions, to a great extent, when there's choice, which there often is you know, it's incumbent upon them to uh, promote their services so as to attract people to their facilities uh, to produce revenue. Let's see, uh, Thomas, what are you saying here? So Thomas points out that why did y'all change stances on this, talking about extension of postpartum Medicaid care? And I asked Thomas, who is y'all? He said, you, Gallo, Tate, and Gunn. I don't think that's an accurate representation. I've made it very clear. I'm I'm on the fence on this When I'm 50-50, very torn, and I explained that yesterday. Um, I don't know where Mr. Gallo stands on this matter. Uh, the governor has, in fact, indicated where he stands. And I would say the Speaker, too, is on the fence. I mean, I think it's a good way to describe it. Really won't know until the bill, which has been uh, which has passed out of committee, whether or not that makes it on the schedule for the house to take up or not. I think that would give you a good indication. I know in general the speaker op- opposes this. He's made that very clear. Even even though he said yesterday with Mr. Gallo that he requested information from the division of Medicaid, including their stance on this. And the Division of Medicaid sent a letter indicating they supported it and provided some other data. Even after receiving that, the speaker, I think, is skeptical. I think is a fair way to put it on this matter. So I, I think your your characterization of it, Thomas, is inaccurate. I just wish that this, Thomas goes on to say, that this wasn't billed as not expanding Medicaid, it wasn't billed as conservative. Well, I I wish you'd stop using the term, honestly, Thomas, because it's your definition versus a lot of other people's definition. What's conservative to one person is far-left, loon, liberal to another, and vice versa. There is no consensus. About as much consensus as there is how many genders there are. So, and the reason I make the distinction, Thomas, is because the the phrase Medicaid expansion, those two words together, is how allowing able-bodied adults with an income of a certain range to be eligible for Medicaid has been described across the nation as medicaid expansion since 2010 20, 2009 actually when the bill uh, the ultimate affordable care act was was filed and deliberated in the halls of congress that's why that is that is that refers to something popularly that is different than what this is does it technically expand medicaid services yes absolutely i acknowledge that but it's not it's not consistent with what has been described and labeled as medicaid expansion going on 14 years now that's the only point i'm trying to make about that and it's also not permanent it extends the time period of coverage not Permanent coverage. Medicaid expansion is permanent as long as the individual enrolled under uh, the expansion uh, program uh, maintains eligibility. That's different. One is temporary, one is permanent. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios, Dr. Jennifer Bryan at 1205. Stay with us.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbett. Okay. Mm. Come on, let's get on with the show! Yes. On Super Talk Mississippi.
5: She's real fine, my four nine. She's real fine, my four. 409, my 409.
2: The Beach Boys bumping us into this segment. Dr. Jennifer Bryan up next on the program after the news break at the top of the hour. My voice hanging in there so far, keeping it... So far, so good. Irrigated. Uh, Hopefully I can get through at least at this level. Can't talk real loud, then it starts putting a little stress on the the vocal cords, but certainly feel better about it than I did on Saturday when I was (sighs) like that. Oh, gosh. Uh, The CBO, you know who those guys are, the Congressional Budget Office. They recently did a little analysis of our debt at a national level and what that might cost in terms of interest payments (laughs) over the next decade. Now, we just talked about Robert Reich's All bent out of shape because the Trump tax cuts, he says, gave trillions to a handful of billionaires, which is a complete fallacy. That is mathematical ignorance. This is what is true, however, is that our debt service, in terms of interest, is going to amount to an eye-popping 10.5 trillion over the next 10 years. Just interest. No principal, just interest. So, Mr. Reich, if we wipe out 400 billion of student debt, sir, how does that affect? that $10.5 trillion interest figure, you got three guesses, and the first two don't count. But I ain't sure I know this guy can do the math on this. Doesn't seem like it.
3: So... Which is pretty much an indictment of everybody he's worked for.
2: It's totally true. The Department of Education secretary. I guess it's a Department of Education without the benefit of without any concern to teach math, basic math. So, he's okay, or I should say he's blasting the trillions, which is completely wrong, that went to billionaires, a handful of billionaires. But he's okay with forgiving debt to run up this $10.5 trillion interest tab. It, it just... It's so aggravating because it's one sided duplicity and the minions just lap this crap up. And that's what bothers me. And it's it's an as you said, it's an indictment on the intellect of our people who can't seem to reason through this and apply basic logic. It's it's just so out of control. But ten point five trillion, we don't get any benefit from it. We've already gotten it. That's see, that's what's missing here. This is just interest on the debt. We're not getting anything new. This is not investing. We hear that all the time. We have to invest. This isn't investing. This this is just debt debt interest. Put a match to it.
3: Yeah, if you hear a Democrat politician use the word invest, unless it's money going into their account, they're talking about redistribution.
2: Unbelievable. One point four trillion is the figure the CBO estimates will our interest tab be in twenty twenty-three. One point four trillion a year. A hundred and twenty billion. A month. I can't even comprehend it, wrap my head around it. $4 billion a day, I think it works out to be. Of just Roughly. interest. Interest. Just interest. But Joe's running around patting himself on the back about how great the economy is. No concern whatsoever. Oh, and get this. Just where most of the spending growth comes from. We've said it on the program before. No surprise to those that listen in. Health care, Social Security. That's where it's coming from. That's where all the growth's coming from. Our government essentially is in the health care and Social Security pension business. That's essentially what it is. Defense now a distant second. Protecting, you know, the country from bad guys blowing it up. That's fallen way down the list. Yet, in accordance with our Constitution, that's the most core function of government. But yet, from a spending perspective, it don't even get on the radar. Unbelievable. Thomas is weighing in on that. I'll get to that later. I got some thoughts about other approaches to providing health care. To our citizens, citizenry, but when we come back, Doctor Jennifer Bryan, Mississippi State Medi- Medical Association Board of Formway Super Talk Mississippi
0: ninety-seven point three. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, Talk, think deeply and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: In the Element Wealth Studios for hour three of midday Super Talk Mississippi on this hump day and joining us now in the studios dr jennifer bryan past president of uh, board of trustees chair actually is the, is the official title of the mississippi state medical association just trying to get straight all the titles there Doctor. Health, health policy nut how about that <laughs> that's uh, probably more appropriate uh, i know that of course from knowing you and, and you coming in on the show so many times and yes. also following your tweets on twitter yeah. you tweet quite a bit yeah
1: enjoy it thank about you. that and thank you for that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, healthcare is complicated. Healthcare <laughs> policy is especially complicated. I submit that I'm no fan of socialized medicine right. the way it exists in the nations that have it, where healthcare professionals work for the government. They're employees of the government. Right. That's a little different than, in my view, the distinction would be. Uh, to those nations such as this, which have a lot of um, publicly funded programs right. uh, for for health. It's a little different. So so what makes it complicated, and this is where I'm going with this, is that it's a hybrid. We we have a lot of uh, government uh, involvement in health care, health care delivery, health care coverage, health care regulations, but... Most of it is provided by the private sector. It's just a heavily regulated private sector, and that me. makes it totally complicated.
1: It is, and it's always going to be that way in some capacity. You know, if if you want um, to have zero government-run health care, that ship sailed a long time ago, uh, And and I totally agree with what you just said. It's a highly regulated environment. Um, you know, it's, um, it is a hybrid, and ultimately it all comes back to, to the dollar and, and how we spend it and being wise with, with our money because the health care is going to happen. You know, the patients are going to deliver the babies, as we're talking about right now. It's going to get paid for in some capacity, and so how do we shoulder that cost um, the smartest way? How are we the most responsible with our dollars?
2: I have a, uh, a friend that I play golf with regularly. I won't say their name on the air. Uh, and I'm sure you know this individual, an OB, a uh-huh. practicing OB, yeah. that tells me that when he is on call, as they often are, of course, that's, a baby can come at any point, right? So somebody's got to be ready. You can't say, well, I'll, I'll see you in the morning right. when that happens. Tells me that every year the fair, the state fairs in town, <laughs> somebody's having a baby that Our works David. for the state fair yeah. and often have no insurance and cannot pay.
1: So, yeah, I was looking at uh, some of that. I think we've got uh, like an over 8% uninsured uh, delivery in the states. We talk about the Medicaid stuff. I was just looking up stats, and I, I think that is not a number to, to sneeze at. Of course, a lot of these people are working, and, and that's the issue. We, You and I have talked a lot about how astronomical insurance is these days. We know that, and these are unique times we're living through, and the inflation is is hard. And so, really, when we talk about extension Um, We're looking at this eligibility period for these parents who have – we've delivered a child, and we've arbitrarily cut them off at 60 days. And and the 12 months there of the extension of eligibility time that we're talking about, you know, one-third of the mortality deaths happen after that 60-day mark. One-third of those moms are going to die, and we have one of the highest rates in the country.
2: Actually, it's the highest rate. I looked it up the other day,
1: and and the highest infant mortality rate as well. So Correct. it's it's um, we are in a crisis, and how we respond to this is how history will will look back and judge us. And I want to take just a second, if I could, and and thank you know the leadership uh, around the board who's looking at this because everybody wants a solution to this problem that's workable, um, and and you can definitely tell that people are are reaching across the aisle, they're coming to the table and discussing it, and um, and I just appreciate that because as you know in Mississippi medicine is is big business and when we talk about a seven million dollar cost to the budget um the latest numbers i had were from 2018 but just health care provided by physicians alone and i'm not talking about other providers is 7.8 percent of the gross state product uh with 313.1 million dollars generated in state and local revenue uh when you talk about jobs and money um this is this is a big economy and each physician Directly uh, provides 11 more jobs. And then when you look at indirect jobs, there's like 51,305 jobs in healthcare. I could go on and on and on about it, but when we invest in healthcare, the tax dollars come back, is the point.
2: Well, and those figures, uh, Dr. Bryan, are consistent with the, the same uh, composition nationwide. Mm-hmm. If you look at uh, the composition of, of the amount of spending on healthcare. Uh, relative to total U.S. GDP. The state is is fairly in line with that, as are all the states, which mm-hmm. I think you, you would expect. And, uh, you know, it feels like, well, that's one of those things you really can't do without. You don't really have a choice. If you get ill, you certainly have a choice over your lifestyle that may lead to, right. to illness and disease and so forth. But in a lot of cases, you don't. I mean, you don't do anything. It's just the way it is. We're well, mortals.
1: Well, and and when you're you're talking about postpartum care, I think it's timely. We have talked about it for years, but we do have this pro-life focus now, and and our moms really can't wait. I think that's the message uh, that that you hear over and over again. Fifty-three percent of maternal deaths occur between seven days and, and one year postpartum. We can do better than that. We absolutely can.
2: So we do have, uh, in fact, uh, Wallet Hub is a, a an outfit that does a lot of um, surveys uh, across the country. And uh, they seem to be pretty reliable. I've looked at a lot of their surveys. They just completed one on the um, states that are worst for women. Okay, worst right. for women. All right. No surprise, our state's the worst. And they report, and they include D.C., the 50 states, and D.C. as is, is a, um, a statistical entity in the, the data. Women's uh, life expectancy at birth were 51st. Forty-sixth female uninsured rate, 50th high school graduation rate for women, uh, 51st share of women in poverty. These aren't surprising statistics, honestly. And, and that I don't know how that dovetails into the, the notion of extension of postpartum care. Here, here's what I can say, though, and ask you to weigh in on that. You cited some statistics about uh, maternal mortality mm-hmm. rates, uh, postpartum. And then I've also seen some that say, well, eight, up to 88% of, of postpartum maternal deaths occur within the 60-day period of Medicaid coverage, mm-hmm. and, and maybe somewhere in the middle. It depends on who's who, honestly, is compiling the statistics and doing the, the research. But I guess the bigger question is, to me, is that just the exclusive statistical metric? Are there other illnesses... Yes that a postpartum mother needs to be concerned with or perhaps that are intensified as a result of just being pregnant having a baby
1: well at first thank you for that question absolutely uh and and i wrote one of my papers that i had to do to graduate residency years ago was on postpartum cardiomyopathy which is something that we see often where they go into heart failure but you know i got to reading this week about crisis pregnancy centers and shout out to them and the services they they provide Uh, i think there's again depending on where you read it's 31 to 38 across the state which you know certainly would not be enough to we would want more, right? But uh, as far as providing medical care, most of them don't, is my understanding. Right. Okay, And so when we're realistically looking at how we're going to take care of these patients, um, yeah, there's significant. Up until 12 months, that's how the CDC defines what postpartum is, 12 months. We arbitrarily chose to. So we've got 12 months, and you ask any mother... At that has been out there, it takes that 12 months before your body really gets back to normal. And that's where the benefit comes in proper spacing of pregnancies, making sure this this mother is healthy for the the next pregnancy. Because when you talk about the real cost of Medicaid, it takes one baby to be born with significant prematurity or health problems. Maybe a mother did not have access to care. And you are talking about astronomical cost of Medicaid. And when you look at, I think we've got over 4,400 preemies born statewide. And and over half of these babies are on Medicaid. Millions 65%. and millions. Yes, millions and millions of dollars are spent, um, what was the number? Average just on a regular birth is five thousand to six thousand dollars per birth, approximately a million on the complicated one. So how many babies born with significant issue does it take to recoup seven million? Not many.
2: Yeah. And and it doesn't feel like, and we'll talk about this on the other side of the break. uh, Some of this financial and economic comparative data, I think, needs to be uh, have greater relevance in the discussion as well. It's Um, I, I think that gets left out of the discussion. It's a big
1: part of this conversation.
2: Dr. Jennifer Bryan is our guest in the Element Well Studios. We're coming right back.
0: That keeps Mississippi talking. Midday's with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Back in the Element Well Studios, we've got Dr. Jennifer Bryan here uh, in the Element Well Studios. Thomas and Greenwood, what prevents access to care for these women? What privilege do I have that allows me to provide for my own health care? It's not privilege, Thomas. It's just that uh, you and I and Dr. Bryan and so many others of us are are fortunate to have uh, gainful employment uh, where we are able to produce enough income to uh, buy our own health insurance and have coverage uh, for these ailments. There are a lot of folks that don't. I don't know if you've priced health insurance, if you pay attention to that very much. I can tell you this, Dr. Brian, I'm approaching Medicare age. And because of my income, i got to pay the maximum yep. for Medicare. After having paid into it for 40 years, mm-hmm. it's going to cost my wife and I 1500 bucks a month. For Medicare.
1: Yes. Hell, it's, it's astronomical. Nuts. It's 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 it really is a, a numbers conversation, which is why I'm glad our, our leaders are looking at this. Um we were talking at break about the number of preemies born in this state and I wanna double back on that. Yeah. The, just the NICU at university, I used to describe it as looking like a football field of bassinets. It's, it's huge. It's, it's massive. And each one of those babies is is ill. You know they they they're fighting for their lives, and it just you think about year long those beds stay full, and they're not the only NICU in the state. It
2: and I hate to interrupt you no. for the benefit of our audience. That's neonatal Thank intensive you. care unit. Right. Uh, you and I can talk about that, but some some people may not know, and that's fine. And this is a blessing at the University Medical Center. It is a one. blessing.
1: Well, and, and and all of us who went through medical school and training, they rounded, you know, in that space. So having awareness, but you said that you toured it.
2: Blew me away. Yeah, it change, changed. changed me. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't get it off my mind. I couldn't get the – I can still see it vividly today. When you walk in that room and you see all these human lives, tiny human lives, sick, with this army of dedicated uh, medical staff, walking not walking around running around you've seen it they right. literally run around it's unbelievable the energy and they all got a smile on their face
1: yeah they're, and they're taking care of these little people well, I who are sick i had two preemies myself um but i will tell you that having seen those babies particularly the ones that were really affected uh, significantly you're talking about lifelong expenditure you know a million at the start but it goes forward so when you're looking to save money we need we need to be proactive and not reactive and and Maternal care, as you were telling me, was told to you that day by um, by the leadership there. Maternal care can avoid so much of what you saw on that football field of bassinets of sick babies. There is so much that we can do to get ahead of this and save money if we want to work together on a solution that's real um, and and not pretend.
2: You know, doctor. Uh, actually, she's not a doctor. I don't think. Rhino Getty Israel that runs the Sisters in Birth organization Mm -hmm. in Jackson. She's been on the program a couple of times. She made a lot of sense, honestly, Dr. Bryan, and I wish we could get her more more, uh, involved uh, in this issue and maybe address our lawmakers, because what she said was so much of this is avoidable with uh, just adopting good health habits before you get pregnant yep. and certainly during pregnancy and she even and so she has a what she called um, experience based is that what she's evidence-based, evidence-based pardon me evidence-based data that says if you just follow these guidelines, you're a whole lot less likely to have a problematic delivery and then problems postpartum uh, but apparently, uh, her services are not eligible for reimbursement by any insurance
1: but for those who are listening and uh, you know you may know um, you may have been pregnant yourself or had someone in your family who's been pregnant but that requires at least a monthly visit and at that visit when you know i did prenatal care myself with patients we do that kind of counseling and so physicians we're used to that we screen okay. for problems we catch them along the way so you know it takes all hands on deck but i just want to point out that there's so many things that we can catch and prevent and treat and deal with when there's proper prenatal care in place. Uh, And then you asked about conditions postpartum, and I I started with the heart, but I just want to say that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention postpartum depression. It's it's rampant, particularly in today's stressful times. Healthy babies come from healthy mothers, and it is a tragedy that we are arbitrarily cutting them off at 60 days. Twelve months makes a whole lot of sense to return their body to that full normal state and um, and to cover them through that postpartum period as defined by the CDC.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated and it's a thorny issue and I, and I think you would probably share my view that we should educate the public more about hey before you get pregnant, start a family, you you need to really think about the the Big cost, the, the, the economic situation uh-huh. with that. Um and and Perform in as responsible, conduct yourself in as responsible a manner as absolutely possible. Um, And and so I would agree that we don't want to incentivize uh, folks to get pregnant and start families by just doling out money. We certainly. So, I think education is is certainly should be more in focus in that respect.
1: But it is exciting, you know, the the pro life uh, things that are moving forward with support of women and babies and children. And um, this is the, is a a logical look that we've been looking at for a long time. And it is not just about. Um, Although it is a, a good thing to do, it is very much an economic decision that makes a whole lot of sense if we can look at the whole picture of where money can be saved. And um, and then also, this is our future. Uh, it We invest in our kids now. It pays off long-term for our state. And, and having a healthy mom is a big part of having a healthy one-year-old that grows up to be a functioning and contributing member of society at 30. That's just... And, and I did hear a question this week about... Having access to health care does it improve outcomes and I, I hope so because that's you know that 's my career and and we get them in and we make changes and I see it every day we come back we 've got a better blood pressure we 've got better sugar control they've their diet has changed, and yes i mean these these pregnancies are in real time affected by that access
2: right. Well, I, I know certainly anyone that uh, has the opportunity to see firsthand in person that NICU and the intent, and then the more critical area. I'm not exactly sure what that, that carved-out room was called, but it was for the more acute cases, the more critical cases, uh, that you're witnessing a bunch of technology and a bunch of people uh, using those tools, to um, nurse these these babies to, to health and, and to live uh, and productive, gonna, normal lives. They're it's gonna, incredible.
1: They're going to keep doing it, but it sure would be nice for those babies to be healthy in the first place and not need to show up. And I think the ask is – you know, we've had so many leaders come out in recent weeks about this. Is is just to let the people have their say here. I hope that this will come up for a vote and that we can really get some traction and movement on this. Um, you know, that's that's kind of how our system is set up, and and I hope that we're able to to move forward with this and and continue with the pro life agenda with you know taking care of moms and babies. This just makes uh, economic sense, but also just good common sense.
2: What are you hearing uh, from? the hospitals and healthcare providers in general with respect to just the shortage of, of personnel, mm-hmm. talent. It's it's incredible.
1: It is, and I'm glad you brought hospitals up because that's an entire part of postpartum care that would not be covered by our, our wonderful volunteer groups, although they do a great service. Uh, staffing um, continues to be a challenge, but technology is improving. Uh, access is improving. We're looking at creative things like protocols in clinical practice to deal with some minor illness that, um, you know, just kind of utilizing, working smarter, not harder. Um, things are coming around. Staffing is still quite, quite difficult. But we've been in this long enough now where we're landing on our feet and moving forward. And um, I think we're going to continue to ask the public for patience. Uh, you know, wait, wait times are still longer. Hospitals still fill up. The people are not going anywhere. The hospitals are still full. But we are learning to manage them. And with some patience, um, I think we're going to get through this. And, and new graduates are coming. Uh, we just had a, a big lull there kind of in the middle of COVID. We lost a lot of people. Yeah. To work for a lot, but yeah. there's renewed interest post pandemic, you know. So that's it's coming, we're getting there.
2: Have you seen the various uh bills that that uh, take on the health care issue that are making their way through uh the legislature? We got the grant program, yes. you've got the grant program from hospitals, grant program for nurses, yes.
1: All, all of that investment in health care is so needed and so appreciated. You know, it just it, it really um, we're not going to be anywhere when we can't take care of our citizens and get them proper health care, particularly post covid. So it's exciting. The things that are coming and graduating more and and training them here is wonderful.
2: Dr. Jennifer Bryan, the past Board of Trustees Chair for the Mississippi State Medical Association, has been our guest on middays. Thanks for coming in, Doctor. Always good to see you. Thank you for having me. Coming right back. Half an hour left on the program. Stay with us.
5: I'm proud to say that my buttercup. I'm in love. I'm shook. All shook up. Hey, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbet. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
2: Turner Overdrive straight from about mm, 71, something like that. 72, BTO. Randy Backman, I think, is the way you pronounce his name. Backman. Canadian, of course. Canadian, eh? Yeah. I'm gonna go, eh? <laughs> <boot>, that's right. <laughs> uh, I think I shared one time that. Was it Bachman or some, one of the members, or maybe a couple, came from the Guess Who? But also a Canadian band. They're a band. They are, of course, popularly known for the song "American Woman," "No Sugar Tonight," "These Eyes." Some of their big tunes from the '60s.
3: Yeah, according to Wikipedia, after finding success with the Guess Who, Randy Bachman shockingly
2: left at the height of the group's popularity in there 1970, and and formed BTO, right?
3: Yeah, he cited uh, health issues and lifestyle differences with the other band members. (laughs)
2: Lifestyle? (laughs) He recalled
3: being labeled a, quote, lunatic and a loser, end quote. (laughs) And that, quote, nobody wanted to work with me, end quote.
2: (laughs) Oh, me. That's fascinating. Uh, Gary and the Berg sent us uh, a report here from one of the local television stations, announcing that the Doobie Brothers are coming to the Brandon Amphitheater in August, and he wanted to know if we're going to have them on the show. Well, we would be proud to have uh, the Doobie Brothers on, but Rhino's going to give away some tickets. We're all over it, Gary. Oh, yeah, the Doobie Brothers are one of the best-selling groups of all time, and they will
3: be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on August 26th. That's a Saturday. Tickets for the show will go on sale this Friday, at Ticketmaster.com, or if you're in the area, you can swing by the Brandon Amphitheater box office and pick them up. But you've got a chance to win a pair of tickets right now before they even go on sale. And all you got to do is be the 21st person to text into the C Spire text line. That's 601-879-4395. Be the 21st person to text in the phrase, What a Fool Believes. And you'll win a pair of tickets to see... The Doobie
2: Brothers at the Brandon Amphitheater on Saturday, August 26th. What a Fool Believes, an iconic tune. Huge hit, of course, for the Doobie Brothers and featured uh, the great Michael McDonald on vocals in that one. On the ceasefire text line, could the money we get from the lottery that goes to roads and education be used for the hospitals instead? Absolutely. It just requires uh, changing the law now that that would require a, a little bit more investigation and analysis as to exactly how those proceeds would be allocated to hospitals would private run owned hospitals qualify maybe the such a uh, an approach would simply provide some sort of fund for covering Those uh, who would meet some sort of income test, eligibility test, akin to the way Medicaid eligibility works. But instead of it being Medicaid, just keep in mind, though, anything like that where you're covering individuals, um, such as through use of lottery proceeds, you're not getting any assistance from the federal government in that regard. So that would be a distinction with that approach versus extending <clears throat> postpartum coverage, which is covered mostly by the federal government, or expanding Medicaid to include able-bodied adults, which also is covered and funded uh, by 90% by the federal government. It's estimated that Medicaid expansion would would uh, fetch... Uh, Just under a billion dollars from the federal government, and the state share would be hundred to one hundred and fifty million, roughly in that neighborhoods. But yeah, I I think all ideas should be on the table. Honestly, all ideas. The fact is, we have the fourth highest uninsured population in the country, at twelve percent. Uh, which means that they, in the, for the most part, those individuals do not have any sort of coverage, but they still consume services. And those services are being absorbed by health care providers and hospitals. That's, that's the fundamental problem. So the question is, how do we best address that? Because contrary to what Thomas tells us here, Rhino, we're not going to let them just die. We ain't going to let them be sick. No physicians that I know of are going to violate their Hippocratic Oath. No hospitals are going to violate MTALA, which requires them to accept patients in their emergency room and stabilize them in order to retain participation in Medicare and Medicaid. So they're going to get care. The question is, how do we pay for it? And while I totally agree, as Thomas points out, that there are bad choices made by individuals, there's no doubt. I just said that with Dr. Bryan. We could do, I believe, a better job of educating our population about bad lifestyle choices that contribute to illness and disease and gum up the health care system. Cost us all a bunch of money, especially if you live an unhealthy lifestyle and you don't have a way to pay for your health care when it gets to the point where i got to go get some treatment. All right? I, you know, you get to the, And a lot of people just live with those ailments. You know that. Walk around and finally get to that point where they can't function. So they land in an emergency room. Their ailment having lingered on for quite some time, now it's gotten to a much more critical stage, cost a whole lot more to treat it, to deal with it, often results in really bad permanent health outcomes, including death. So the question is, how do we address that issue? I don't care if it's Medicaid expansion, which I certainly don't believe is a silver bullet exclusive total complete solution, not whatsoever do I. And there's no doubt that, and I know that this isn't received well by a lot of people in our society, there's no doubt that a lot of people end up pregnant, and uh, even if they're married, honestly. And are gainfully employed, but they simply don't have the means to add another human into their lives from an economic perspective. Barely can stay above water for themselves. And again, in Mississippi, that's especially a problem, given our 50th in the nation per capita income and household income. So how do we get the message out? How do we educate our population to maybe refrain from starting a family. If it's an economic burden that and hardship that just simply cannot be absorbed, because I absolutely agree, society shouldn't be compelled for something that costs money that is could have been avoided. How, how do we get there? I'm not for the government dictating to people that they cannot have babies, and I know a lot of people would say we should just cut them off after a certain point, and that's well and fine. But in practice, in reality, if someone is pregnant, even if they went with zero medical treatment, prenatal care during the period of pregnancy, when they get ready to deliver and they land in a hospital, nobody's going to say, Hey, can you pay us? If you can't, I'm sorry. you got to step outside and drop that baby in the street, the parking lot. That ain't going to happen. So the only potential, I wouldn't call it solution, but maybe to provide some degree of relief is to how do we get people to understand how expensive it is and other problems that may come your way as a parent if you're just not in position. I, you know, I read the hardship stories from the left. I know you've seen them. And it's a single mother working at the fast food restaurant, making 20 grand a year, and they're having their fourth kid. Well, that's, those are poor choices. I agree with Thomas on that. How do we stop that? I don't, I'm not for the government stepping in. I mean, what do we do, sterilize them? Well, no, I'm not for that. I don't think any reasonable people would be, I can't speak for for Thomas, he may think that's what we should do. I'll ask him that question. I just know it's a problem, and I guess at this point, what I hear a lot, or what won't work, what I hadn't heard is what would. And I think we all got to come together and put our collective brain power together. combine our collective brain power to come up with something that can address these issues. That's all. Coming right back with more. We got a winner, don't we? We do. Coming right back. Final segment on Middays. Please stay with us.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbett. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Mose makes a uh, rather interesting and, I think, fairly accurate analysis here, Rhino, says, Gerard, have you noticed that a lot of people want a slice of the lottery money for a project they support? I wonder how many of them were originally against the lottery. Uh, probably most, honestly. I wouldn't go that far, but I'd, I'd no, say it's, it's at least deal. 50-50. Yeah, I would agree. Well, you're, first, you're right, Mose, but secondly... It's $120 million, folks, a year. The state budget, $6 billion. It's, um, it's good in that it's a chunk of money for something that I think most people agree is necessary, road and bridge infrastructure. And it, it obviously doesn't cover the entire budget of the Department of Transportation, which is a billion a year. So this money, by the way, never flows through the legislature, never hits the general fund. This goes straight to the state highway fund, which is uh, allocated, managed by the Department of Transportation, Brad White and Company. It's $120 million, so it's 12%. Actually, only 80, pardon me, of the $120 million, by law, goes to the state highway fund, so it's... It's uh, less than 10 percent, 8 percent to be exact. So it, if we chop that money up in all the ways folks would like to spend it, it's like a dollar per cause <laughs> by, the, by the time it's allocated. But I, I hear you, Mose, and I appreciate that. Um Maybe a birth control implant, which is temporary, or loss of any money you may receive. Like you, I'm looking for a solution. This is on the c tax line. Not a popular solution, but I don't see one that would be. Yeah, that wouldn't be. And and while I – what you're saying there is completely rational and reasonable and justified, but the practical reality is we ain't going to let children go hungry. We're just not. Now, is it, abs- is it absolutely true that, like we just discussed, the the case that cases I should say that the left typically puts forward it's the the worst scenario hardship cases always the single mother with a low level of income that's got three or four mouths to feed at home. Yeah, that that's. Bad bad personal decisions, no doubt. But as a society, we ain't going to let them starve. How do we change this cultural behavior? One of promiscuity, honestly. I think it's that as much as it is the small amount of money, benefits received from expanding a family. It, it's It's a cultural thing going on. You see more and more of it happening at at uh, younger ages. That's been building up for a long time. It used to be taboo. A shame when you're in high school and you got pregnant. You'd usually be whisked out of the school, right? Go off somewhere, family. Oh, yeah. But now we have parties. It's true. We glorify it. We praise it. We laud it. There were several seasons of a TV show about it. Yeah, exactly right. You're exactly right. What was the name of that dang show? I remember what you're talking about. 16 and Pregnant? Something like that,
3: yeah. have Teen Moms. Maybe there were multiple shows. I don't remember. I never watched them.
2: Thomas says that we're headed for forced sterilization. That happens in socialist countries. Except the largest communist nation on the planet now is encouraging, not only encouraging, paying its citizens to propagate. You've seen that. Yeah, because they got
3: behind the eight ball for spending a decade and a half really only wanting to give birth to boys. Right. Kind of hard to have a population continue if
2: it's all male. It's brazen eugenics. And, of course, Japan though they didn't sterilize they strongly or or didn't penalize they strongly encouraged they're not a communist nation they're a democratic nation their citizenry you know we got a lot of people on this island we need to well that was to. an
3: example of the flip side of what's happened here where promiscuity has become so rampant in Japan because of the work culture where you show up an hour early for work and you stay 2 hours after you're supposed to leave and if you don't you don't get a promotion you don't get ahead you you're just behind everybody that work culture didn't allow for time for building a family
2: it's true good point you were encouraged to strenuously compete with your colleagues that's how they produce so much
3: which has produced incredible mm -hmm. cultural responsibility by the japanese but it is definitely
2: hurt their demographics no doubt about it and now they're begging their citizens their childbearing age citizens please have babies because our population is aging and we need more people to pay the bills for those who no longer can work and they're in the sunset years We are out of time here on the program. Appreciate all the discussion, and uh, thanks for tuning in. We are back in the Element Well Studios once again tomorrow. I think Will's filling in, right? Until then, stay safe. God bless.
0: A Super Talk Mississippi Ah! media production.